Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. All right, welcome to Cancer Youth Thriver. We are here with Mark Kelly, who's sharing his story. Mark is a 29-year cancer survivor. Mark attended Gordon College and was hired by ESPN as a researcher. During his 10-year career, Mark won two Emmy Awards. In 2008, Mark retired from ESPN due to the side effects of his cancer treatment. That year, Mark established CK Magic Sports, where he has produced and hosted over 130 podcasts. In 2019, Mark published a book titled My Scars Tell a Story, which details his cancer journey. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. So take us back to the beginning and tell us when and where your cancer journey started. Well, it started uh, in September 1990 when I noticed a, a bump on my rear. I was actually, I thought it was a hemorrhoid. And I just started taking medication at the time for, I had severe acne uh, when I was younger. And I thought it may, may be a side effect of that because the drug I was taking called Accutane has a lot of side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I know pregnant women can't take it. It comes with, you know, back then a lot of people, that, that was your only choice uh, for people who had bad acne. So, and how uh, old were you at this point? I was 16. Okay. I was 16, yeah. And uh, so uh, I figured that, okay, just whenever the, the treatment of, for that will be over, it was like a, a six-month uh, supply that I had to take in order to, to take care of the, the issues I had with that. So I figured, you know, if this is a side effect, so be it. Uh, but it kept getting bigger and bigger and it started to affect more and more things I did. And uh, being an athlete, and uh, it was basketball season was starting. And I started noticing I was getting more and more tired uh, throughout the practice. And uh, I only played in two games before I was diagnosed. So uh, those games were, I played, I played okay, but I noticed that I, I was getting tired. And I had asthma as a kid, so I was used to having breathing issues, but, but these were different types. This is a different type of tired. My whole body kind of felt exhausted. And were you telling your parents about how you were feeling? Well, my parents had their own issues. Uh, my mom and dad were divorcing, so mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't much, you know, I to say they didn't pay attention isn't true. I mean, my mom and, and dad were always kind of, uh, you know, care about, uh, you notice how I was feeling and everything. But uh, it wasn't something that came up. I mean, you don't want your, either of your parents staring at your butt. So it's <laughs> something that was... Okay, be, that's a good point. <laughs> so, you know, I remember one time telling my mom and said, well, have your father... And it's okay, mom, I don't want to... Um, uh, you know, we'll, I'll let the doctor worry about it. And even a doctor too is like, yeah, I don't really want to stare up your... So, so that was, it was, it was, it wasn't like somewhere where, oh, look at my back, oh, look at my arms. So it was a little different. So, so um, how did it actually get diagnosed then? How did it get diagnosed? Well, I had more and more pain going to the bathroom and mm-hmm. on, it was December 8th at this point. Um, and I finally, after going to the bathroom in the morning, uh, it usually would stop. It would sting for about maybe 20 minutes and then it would stop. This time it didn't stop. And so my dad took me to the walk-in place. They diagnosed me with an abscess. And they said, you know, they had a really good surgeon there. They said, okay, you have a, an abscess and, you know, 
you're going to be, we're going to admit you tomorrow. It'll be, we will probably won't even keep you overnight. We'll just it'll be a simple procedure, blah, blah, blah. So when I went in for surgery, that's kind of what I thought was going to happen. Then when I woke up in surgery, it was a little different. Um, so what and, happened uh, when you woke up? Uh, well, they, they, I didn't know. I mean, you're kind of out of it um, at that point. So it wasn't until like the next day when I asked my mom what's going on. She said, well, they, uh, you know, because I thought I was still about to go home. And, and they said, no, they, what they, they discovered it wasn't an abscess. They don't know exactly what it is. So they're testing it. Uh, and then it'll be a couple more days before you go home. And, but what they essentially did was they cut into a big tumor of blood vessels, which, mm-hmm. yeah, I almost bled to death right there on the table. So they had to pack me with this paper, I remember. And when I had the paper removed, that was really, really uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, this is the worst thing I'm going to go through. But uh, that was just the beginning. And um, then on December 12th, which was two days later, two days after I had the surgery, they came back and said, uh, this is what it is. And it was a, they didn't tell me at the time that it was a, a rare terminal cancer. But um, that's what they told my parents. And they said, you know, there's really not much we can do from here. We'll send you to Sloan Kettering or Manhattan. And at that point, they said, you know, at best, we're dealing with six months for him. Unless, uh, what did they tell you specifically? Uh, they told me, we're just going to take you into the city. And okay. we're going to take you to the doctor. And, and, you know, I mean, I didn't even know it was cancer until I had to ask, you know. And then, um, wow. How I found out was interesting because like, when the doctor came in and we were waiting, he said, uh, essentially, the day before, he said, you know, when you go to the bathroom, you'll be able to go home. And that's, I was happy. I was able to go to the bathroom finally. Uh, and then uh, I was, you know, when he came in, I told him I'm ready to go home. And he said, well, you know, we're not going to send you home just yet. Uh, and then he asked my dad to talk to my dad, and they left the room. And then when they came back, you could see my father, who didn't hide his expressions well, was very distraught. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't tell me. And then he left at that point, and I guess at that point he went and he called my mom. And then my mom came, and then about an hour later, I finally wandered out of my hospital room because nobody had come back at that point. And I found them all, like, at the end of the hallway, and they were all, like, kind of crying in the in, a, in yeah. another room and um so i was the only one who wasn't upset because i what i didn't what do i know i don't know what i'm in for you know so um i just said okay well this is what we gotta do we'll do it and then uh before we went to the hospital we actually stopped up at my high school and i got to see a lot of my friends so then they were like i mean you want to see people who faces got really white and a lot of them probably the worst news they've ever heard at that point in their lives. So, you know, they had just seen me a week before, you know, they'd known me for all these years. I was friends with a lot of them and now they think I'm going to die. So. But you didn't think you were going to die. I didn't think so. No. Why is that? Um, I guess ignorance, you know, ignorance is bliss, they say. And it definitely was in that case. I didn't know much. I didn't know anything about, cancer other than old people got it. I didn't know anything about chemo. This is why I think what we, we, what we do is so important. Um, I didn't have to know. I was a kid, you know. I was 16, you're not really a kid, but um, I can imagine what my parents were going through. They probably were in the same boat, maybe a little different. Uh, so for me, it was just, you know, all I really wanted to do was, okay, and I know I'm sick, but when can I play sports again? When can I see my girlfriend again? When can I do this again, you know? And, you know, I remember my doctor who is very, uh, Dr. Myers, and he was very uh, doctory, I guess. You know, doctors, <laughs> they, 
doctors at Sloan Kettering were either very cold and very, you know, man, matter of fact, or they were insane. So, you know, I mean, insane meaning like the, you like the type of people you put in a room and they'll discover something very important, but you don't want them to socially be with you. Right. They'll always <laughs> say the wrong thing, you know? You know, like that uncle who gets drunk at a Christmas party and you're kind of, you know, don't, let's keep him away from the children. You so know, so not good social manners. Is yeah, what exactly. Right, okay. right. Yeah. <laughs> no social manners. They had no idea how to tell you, you, you know, uh, no bedside manner, none of that. Okay. So what was your um, doctor I, like? Yeah. And so Dr. Dr. Myers was my first doctor was like that, but he saw that, you know, I was a young kid and he saw I was an athlete. And so I wanted to know when I could play again. He's, and he kind of, you know, switched the argument to, well, I wouldn't be, I'd be more concerned about some other things, but, uh, you know, if you, if you make it, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't play. Um, which, you know, at that point, there was no reason to believe I was going to make it. So he was telling the truth. He just wasn't, um, you know, telling me how, how dire the circumstances were. The good thing was that uh, when, after being there for about an hour, they, uh, they got my results from the other hospital and their doctors looked at it and they said, well, uh, you guys misdiagnosed them. It's not terminal cancer. It's a rare form of cancer. That's very, uh, that usually doesn't happen in kids his age, mostly kids between the ages of two and six. That's called rhabdomyosarcoma. And uh, while it's, that's not a much better diagnosis because it is a killer, we've had success with this different protocol that we've just started running with the people that we've, we brought through this protocol and that's what we're going to do for him. So, uh, and the protocol was very, the thing was that they, and they told me, they said, while the cancer certainly will kill you, this might kill you as well. So, um, the treatment because of how we're going to, uh, how much chemotherapy we're going to give you, how, um, aggressive we're going to be with this, this might kill you as well, but it's your only chance to survive. So how did you feel hearing that though? I didn't have a choice. And you'd be amazed what you can do when you don't have a choice. People say, well, you're, you were a hero or you had so much courage. And I mean, I'm, I'm a coward, basically. I mean, I, I didn't want to go through any of this. If I knew what was going to happen, I would have signed you know, I'm no way. Uh, but I didn't. So you've alluded um, to that a couple of times. So I'd like to mm-hmm. dig a little bit deeper. So sure. what happens? You said several times things happen. So, um, so what was your, your worst moment? There's too many to, to discuss, really. Um, my worst moment. Okay, well, well, we'll start this way. Um, when the thing that gave me hope, the first chemo treatment I had, my tumor shrunk about 75%. Wow. So, uh, it almost disappeared. Uh, and I remember telling my doctor, you know, this thing's hardly, because they, they, the plan was for them to do, uh, give me chemo. And then at the end of, uh, of my chemo, you know, the, the six or seven doses that I would have, then they would operate and remove the tumor that was there. Well, the tumor was just about gone after the first treatment. And wow. it was totally gone by the second treatment. And they couldn't find any trace of cancer in my body by February. So this was, I was diagnosed and, and put in on December 12th. And by February, I have no cancer in my body. Because I, yeah. no, I had no cancer in my bone marrow or anything. They did this protocol as precautionary. And I remember when that happened, I said, 
you know, because I've, I've, you know, I've been religious too over my life, and and they had a a basketball game for me in February, um, a um, you know, to raise money because the costs were ridiculous, and um, someone came up to me and they gave me a note, and that note was kind of like everything I was praying for in that time, which was you know, God, you know, just please take this, you know, kind of like Jesus when he was uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, take this take this cup for me if you can. Yeah. Um, so I was like, please, I just want to go back and play basketball. I want to, you know, have be have the normal life as a, of a 16-year-old. And if so, I was going to be 17 at that point. I turned 17 in March. That's what I was hoping for. And I saw that as, you know, the, the note said, you know, God is your doctor now. You are, you are healed. Um, you know, trust, trust in God. And, and uh, basically everything that the note said was what I was feeling. So I felt, oh, this is, um, you know, God speaks to other people. I said, this is God's way of saying, telling me to stop. So did you, did you feel like the treatment was done at that point? Oh, I I wanted to quit. I mean, I I said, I I am done. I said, because there's no more kids for my body. I said, what what are we doing here? Um, And I I told my parents and they didn't really know what to believe or what to think. You know, I mean, they, they don't want me to suffer, but at the same time, they, they have to listen to, you know, they, they are more wise than I. My mom said something, you know, like, oh, go tell your doctors. And if your doctors say it's okay, then we'll, we'll be okay with it. Like, like what doctors are going to say it's okay? You know, like that, that I'm thinking at the time now, gee, why did I even have hope in any of that? Like, there's no way that my doctors would have said, yeah. So okay. your mom asked you to stand up to the doctor. Well, she, you know, she said, if this is what you were feeling, tell your doctors. And then if they say you can stop your treatment, you can stop your treatment. But she said, you know, God wouldn't necessarily tell you that because he gave these doctors to you and he, he's the one who put these doctors in charge of you. And these are your governing authorities. These are people you really need to listen to. And um, let, me, let me ask you something before you tell us what yeah. happened next. Do you feel in that moment that you were healed? Yes. I feel like the more patients that I speak to, many times they are so much more in tune with their bodies than doctors realize, mm-hmm. no matter what their age. And it's frustrating to hear that doctors don't listen. Well, yeah. I mean, but they, you know, they, if they did listen, they would probably, and the person died, they would be sued probably anyway. So doctors right, would right. their own ass, you know? So you feel like you're healed. They can't find any trace of cancer in your body, but you still have more treatment. So what happens? Oh, I still had, the, and I still had the roughest part of treatment. I mean, I was just, and it's funny because after the second treatment, I almost died after the second treatment because I had the flu when I got my second treatment. Now, if you have chemotherapy, you know, the chemotherapy itself is like getting the flu. Well, have the flu when you get chemotherapy, it's like you can barely stand up. I couldn't, I couldn't stand up for about two weeks and I had fevers of 103, 104 and I lost about 15 pounds in that week, um, constantly throwing up constantly. It was, it was devastating. And I thought I was going to die. I really did. And, um, they decided to give me an extra week off after that because it was so traumatic for me. Normally, you see, back then, too, uh, cancer treatment was barbaric, okay? Like, now it's not as bad. After I got my, you know, when you get your initial dose, whether it's a three- or five-day treatment or even a one-day treatment, your counts start to go down after about the, you know, from the seventh to the tenth day. Yeah. And by the fourteenth day, that's when they should be at their lowest. So anytime you got a fever, you were susceptible to getting it in that point. And once you got a fever you had to go back to the hospital and they had to admit right. you and you had to be on IV antibiotics. Now they have 
um, blood cell or, or white blood cells that they can, you know, uh, inject in you so your white count won't go down and you're able to fight off infection. Back then, they didn't have any of that. Right, right. Well, it won't go down as much as quickly, for sure. Exactly, right. right. So, so I mean, my, my so white you, count was zero. What was the next step? So you said you had more treatments. What did they yeah. do? Yeah, so then my doctor essentially told me, if you walk out of here, you might as well put a gun to your head and pull the <sighs> And then it started to get really bad to where, you know, and then my, my, my counts came back quickly, the first two chemos. And then March, I spent like three days at home. And I lost a lot more weight. I became a lot weaker and it took a lot longer for my counts to come back. But that's exactly what they wanted to do. They, their whole point was to destroy me from being able to make bone marrow. And uh, then they gave me back the bone marrow that they took from me at the end of January, they took bone marrow from me because again, there was no cancer cells in my bone marrow. And that was the bone marrow transplant I was going to have um, in July. And that's essentially what it was leading up to. And then uh, the one good thing that did happen though, that was, that definitely helped me was they came out with a drug. I forget the name of it, but it stopped me from being sick. I wouldn't throw up as much. Okay. Um, so did you have that bone marrow transplant in the summer? I did. I had it in January, uh, in July. Okay. And then throughout the, um, me going through my, because you have to go, I had four weeks of radiation. That's really what did most of my damage because that did a lot of damage to my intestines. And you don't, you don't know the damage radiation is doing to you until later. I had a big part in why I couldn't have children and, and a lot of other things that it destroyed in me that at that point, being 17 years old, you're not really thinking of. And you don't feel any of that when they give you radiation. Radiation is kind of, you know, the worst part about radiation is when they're setting you up to be, to get tested and they have mm -hmm. to put markers on you and they have to stick a hole, it stuck a hose up my butt. And it, I was like, at that point, I'm at the same height I am now and about 115 pounds. I, I was, I was laying down on a table that was rock hard and I felt every piece of that table. And so that, 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 that's, that stuff was kind of hard and all the testing to go through. And then when transplant started, transplant was just one big disaster after the other. Because of the radiation, the bladder, my bladder wall ripped. So that my bladder started to hemorrhage. And they really should have taken my bladder out. But this guy, Dr. LaQuaglia, still, still had Sloan Kettering, one of the best doctors around, didn't take it out. He kept it in. But I had 11 bladder surgeries in the span of three weeks. And this is with no blood counts. Keep in mind, every time my mom saw me being wheeled into the emergency room, she thought she, that was the last time she was going to see me. You know, I had uh, sores up and down my throat to where I couldn't swallow for about a month, couldn't eat for about a month. And uh, then I had my Broviac, which is what they put in you to put the chemo through because, you know, they don't want to use all the veins in your arms because you only have so many. So they, right. just, but they you know, so you don't get stuck every day. That became infected in August. Because of the time span of when I ate, they couldn't put me to sleep during the operation. So they had to operate on me when I was awake. Uh, I, I should have never survived. I prayed to die many nights, but um, God kept me alive. Wow, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Um, in, in all of that, what was your best moment? I guess my best moment was understanding the love God has for me as a person. You know, at times like now, like uh, going through something similar now um, where you feel like there's just no hope or you feel like there's so much uh, that um, you're, you're fighting that it's hard to see the end. You know, if you've heard of the, the, the poem, The Footprints, this is kind of when God's carrying you. 
and it doesn't say in the Bible that, that, um, that God's going to stop any of these things from happening to us. It just promises that he'll never leave us. And that's essentially where you feel that connection uh, with God. And um, if you read the Psalms, there's so many Psalms that uh, David has written where he's really suffering, where he's really able to express how he feels. And I think that's kind of the way I felt at that point. So, you know, it's just like, God, you know, have, either have mercy on me, either destroy all my enemies or just, just take me. What we don't see now is that when the smoke clears, you are that much stronger because you can only really build a character through suffering. Physical suffering, mental suffering, they're, they're different. You just, what, what I pray is that I have the, the chance to help others with coming through what I'm going through now and what I went through then. So uh, that to me is the joy and, and that, that's the, the hope also of salvation is that um, yeah, there's, more, there's more to life than what we have here on earth, but there's also more what we can do here. God, God will be able to, to use what, what has happened to us to inspire and help other people that, need, that are suffering as well. And, and, and now I think that applies to so many people. And so I just want to make a point for people watching this workshop in the future or listening to the podcast in the future, what Mark is referencing at the time of this recording, it's the end of May in 2020. And mm-hmm. we've been going through the COVID-19 pandemic mm-hmm. now for over three months. And Mark lives in New York where it was by far worse than any other city in the U.S. And so that is what he is referring to. So I really appreciate that insight. You know, what in the world is happening? But uh, there's a point to all this. You just don't know yet. You just pray that you'll be able to, to keep the perspective and understand, you know, that things get better. You just, you just can't quit. And that's a big thing. You, you can't give up. Oh, I love that. Can't give up. So Mark, this happened to you when you were young. And what is one thing that you wish you had known at the beginning of that cancer journey? I don't, I don't wish I knew because mm. then I wouldn't have done it. Okay. Okay. I, don't wish I, knew. I think there's a reason why, you know, I didn't know. There's the, I, I do believe that knowledge for, for most people, when you're going through something, you need to have the ability to know uh, what you're up against, uh, how it's going to affect you, how it's going to affect your body. All those things probably would have been good for me to know. I don't know if they would have helped me, but it probably would have made me that much more fearful. You know, now I, I kind of, I, um, I definitely need to know definite stuff and, and like uh, really, you know, uh, not, not just, you know, well, I think this is what might happen or you have to look out for this. I want to know details. So details for me are very important now where they weren't there, which is why I think this is what we do is very important because it, it, it educates people on the choices you have. Uh, I would have liked to have the choice to have sperm um, frozen. And, and so where I would have been able to have a kid if I wanted to. Turns out that, you know, later on in life, suffering from now Crohn's disease and, and lymphedema, there are other challenges that I've faced that, uh, you know, it just didn't work out to where I would be a parent. Um, and, and, and that's fine. I, I, I had given up that, that desire anyway. I think that uh, those types of things, when you don't know them at first, maybe having the choice of, okay, uh, if this, is, this might happen to you, um, this is how you can prepare for it. So if it does happen, uh, you'll be able to still accomplish these things if you want to, or you'll still have the choice to do these things if you want to. Yeah, so I have a question about that. When I was in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with Graves' disease. That, that almost killed me. And I... Um, 
had radiation for the Graves' disease to burn out my thyroid. And mm -hmm. I had to sign a waiver saying that I understood that because I was taking radiation into my body that I might not be able to have children. It might make me infertile. I signed that waiver, but, um, but it was you know, kind of drilled into me, like you understand the risk you're taking, but this is the only choice you have. <laughs> so, but you were 16. You, you know, your parents were the ones speaking for you. Yep. Was that even discussed at yep. all? It was. It was. No, no, nobody cared. At that point, it was, okay, well, if you die, what does it matter? We were much more concerned with me surviving. And okay. I understood that. And, and the, my, my belief was, if God really wants me to have kids, I'll have kids. It don't matter what happens to me. God, God can do better than all that anyway. So, you know, if, if there was something that really he, he, he wanted to use me for, it would happen. So uh, that wasn't the biggest worry. But I do know that for those people who don't have those beliefs, that they need something that they can use too. You know, not everybody believes in God. Not everybody has that basis or that foundation. So for them, it's important that they have choices. You have such an interesting journey and you've had it for a long time. If there was only one thing you could do to improve healthcare in the U.S., only one thing, what would it be and why? I would make drugs legal. Make drugs legal. All drugs? Yeah. But tell us why. The war on drugs, I think, is something that has, that has wasted so much money and has made millionaires of so many people that it shouldn't have. Uh, when something's illegal, you can then prosecute people for being criminals of something that are not really, you know, drug addiction is something that's very strong that, that, that you don't make a lot of conscious right, wrong decisions when your mind is being affected, uh, by, especially by illegal drugs that they deem illegal now that are going to affect you mentally. When they say, if you go into the hospital to have surgery, and you get put on painkillers. Like, I had no idea what painkillers were like before I had cancer. I never would sure. have known. I never yeah. wanted to know. The sure. worst thing they could have done is give me those painkillers because then I knew there was a different form of a way of treating pain. Mm -hmm. Then I knew the, the Tylenol wasn't good enough. You know, that there was, right. you know, when I had sores so severe up and down my throat, you know, I needed something really that really worked. So once you give people that choice, it's hard to take it away if they get used to it. I know so many people that are going through side effects from when they had cancer or from surgery that they've been deemed like bad people now because of this opioid crisis and because of people taking advantage of that and of essentially you now conning doctors to write out scripts for them. You know, and it's, but it affects the people. I, have, I know so many people that are in real pain that get looked at like criminals when they walk into the pharmacy. That breaks my heart. So many people have made money off of illegal drugs and that's created such a market where it, it should never be. If you wanted to end all the problems with drugs, I believe if you made drugs legal tomorrow, so much crime would be less. So much of uh, people, you know, making, you know, taking drugs from the street that God knows what they're laced with. These people that are overdosing, a lot of those problems I believe would be fixed. Um, and what I have to prove that is alcohol. Alcohol, sure. when they made it illegal, it was just chaos. There was a point why they came back and they ended prohibition. Heroin and cocaine, those drugs I do believe need to be monitored. And I don't think that people should have access to them. But some of these other drugs, some of these low-level painkillers, some of these things that you did, people are prescribed after surgery, Having to worry about, oh, I only have this amount left, or, you know, what am I going to do? Where am I going to get the script from? Those types of things I think a lot of people do worry about. They could probably, you could probably make 
those types of drugs legal and not run into many problems. I mean, you really have to overdose to kill yourself with those things. I mean, I've been on some form of painkillers for 25 years. So having taken it responsibly and everything, I, I know the benefits of it, but I've also known, you know, it's because I, I'm careful and I, and I know how to do it. There's so many people who aren't able to get that. Like now, if you need a script for something, it's so hard to get. Yeah, basically the government's made people you know, who need it to, you know, to look like they're doing something wrong. And that makes me very uncomfortable because I know so many people that are suffering in pain because of that. Whether it's marijuana or whether it's, you know, some of that. Look, and I, I know plenty of people that disagree with me, like really disagree with me. They think I'm crazy. I have a problem with somebody doing drugs and going out and driving. Absolutely. But sure. I have a problem with somebody going out and driving when they drink alcohol too. But I think in most cases, people want to just do it in the privacy of their own home, which then again, I don't have any problem with, you know, people are going to do what they want to do. And to take that from them, I think creates more problems than it solves. I really appreciate that insight. And I would have to look it up, but I think prescription drug overdoses, I think they outnumber illegal drugs in the U.S. now. I would, that, but, that because of, of the, the, that people are, are not taking them right or because people are getting them from the street or uh, how is that? Because like what, people become typically addicted first because mm-hmm. they're prescribed a drug, right. you know, after surgery right. or for pain. And then, right. of course, you know, people are numbing emotional pain with that oh, drug. And, and so, and, and I'm the daughter of a prescription addict and my mother was a nurse. Easy access. You know, yep. especially at a time where it just wasn't monitored at all. I mean, I didn't understand as a kid that it wasn't normal for a nurse to come home and empty her pockets and there would be pills and alcohol yeah. pads and syringes and vials. Yeah. And, and I didn't understand that that wasn't normal. I mean, yeah. our, our cabinets look like a pharmacy. I didn't know any different, right? Yeah. And, and my mother was very high functioning for a long period of time until she wasn't to me you're better off not being prescribed it you shouldn't prescribe these drugs to people uh who you don't have a a, a real background of their information and all that stuff because of all the stuff i gone through when i was sick you know i had been on major major iv drugs you know so i you know to me it wasn't any type of new feeling or anything i wasn't aware of for, so, uh, for other people if you're going to prescribe them that you gotta you gotta they gotta know the risks and that none of that that I think created this big problem was really understood. You had so many of these drug companies that were just in it to make money. And uh, that's where a lot of these problems started. Um, but, you know, now, you, now, you know, you have this big issue on their hands and there are people who do need it that are being affected. Um, those are the people I really care about. Um, so I, I, I just believe there's a better way to do it. I, I think you can monitor it that way where you're not creating people, you're not creating criminals. Um, and you're still allowing people to make choices that aren't going to hurt them or other people um, as much as what this war on drugs supposedly that we okay. that'll never ever end and right. there'll never be any you know I don't care what they say there'll never be any way to really overcome it because as long as you have a legal drug you get people that can make money off of illegal drugs. I don't think your point of view is as unpopular as you think it is. I'll be curious to hear how people respond, but I don't think it is, really. So I'm not saying my way is necessarily the best way, but I do think it's a way where you can control a lot of the things that are getting out of control, you can give back to control. Um, All right, are you ready for our Thriver rapid fire questions? Sure. Okay, B, 
beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Oh, Rolling Stones. What is one word that best describes you? Persistent. Okay. Before you die, the last song you want to hear? Oh, uh, what's the name of it? It was, it was, it was a, a guy who saw his wife and kids drown, um, and then he was in the boat, and uh, the, the captain told him where, uh, this is where you're, you're not, not the wife survived, but the kids drowned. I'm terrible with song titles. I'm the wrong person to ask. Uh, um, Who's the singer? Uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a hymn. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's not how great thou art. Um, all, is, all is well. It is well. It is well. It, it is, is well, well with my soul. Yeah. It is well with my soul. Okay, I'm going to have to look that up. Um, yeah. The story behind it is amazing. Between a real guy that uh, owned businesses in Chicago, lost all his businesses in a fire of Chicago. Uh, then him and his family were to take a vacation uh, going to Europe. Uh, and on the boat, uh, he got, he got, he was supposed to go with his family on the boat. And then he got called back to business in Chicago. So he sent his wife, the kids ahead of him. And the boat um, sank. Oh. And he got a wire from his wife saying, survived alone. Um, so she survived. And I think one of the kids survived. And um, then he had to go back and, you know, and get on the boat and go over where his wife and kids were over in England. And when he was going over the part that they drowned in, she, the captain said, this is where your, the accident was. And that's when mm. he wrote the song. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay. Uh, last meal you want to eat? Something with meat. Like steak. <laughs> okay. <laughs> last person you want to see? It, you know, like, there are a number of people. And that would be unfair, I think, to, to so many people that I do love. There would be a number of people that I would want to see. Uh, okay. before I die. Uh, but very I, I diplomatic. These are the people I want to see when I get to heaven. Uh, last words that you will speak. Last words that Jesus, these are tough. Uh, <laughs> last words that I will speak. Did the Jets win? <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's spoken like a true <laughs> a sports person I'm from New York. Yeah. Um, okay. Aside from cancer, you, what is one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients? You know, there aren't many. Um, which is why I think this is so important. There are a lot of places that I think, I mean, you know as well as I do, that this is a, a really hard business to be in because so many are in it for profit. I, I believe that dr chemotherapy and radiation that they still make, they should not make. And there's so much money in it. I think people get greedy and, get, and, and don't even care really about the damage they do to people uh, for chemotherapy and radiation, which to me are, are two when you put poison into somebody's body, there's got to be a better way to treat than that. And I've seen the damage that does, and that makes me really angry. And the fact that it's still going on and that radiation is still an acceptable form of treatment really bothers me. And uh, because I know people are, are benefiting from it, um, and that pisses me off. There's other ways to treat this disease that they need to focus on. They, 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 they can end this disease if they want to. So so much of it is wrapped around in money. Again, I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I just know how the world works. That, that to me is something that uh, when I'm considering where to go for my information, I have to know. And I would tell people to be wary of. It's always get a second opinion. Always understand where, you know, the background of the person who's giving you the information and what's motivating them. Wow, that's great advice. I, I feel like I say always get a second opinion every day. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm always saying that. Oh, yeah. Um, there are so many people that are out there 
that lie straight to your face and don't care and are in it for themselves and they don't they don't give a, a hoot about what you do or anything. Um, but then there are people who, who aren't. So you're going to run into plenty of good people, plenty of bad people. You just, you know, hopefully people will be able to discernment, I think, is very important. Something I, I'm not as good at. Discernment. Um, so. That's a great word, too. That's a, yeah. that's a good word. Um, okay, so you wrote a book. Tell people how they can find your book. Uh, my book is available uh, if you go to my website, CK Magic Sports. It's what I created um, about 2015. I started it, and I started to do podcasting and stuff. That's where they can find my book, which uh, finally was able to get it published in 2019. And, okay, uh, and give us yeah. that URL again. We'll put it in the show notes, too. But what's the URL for the website? Uh, CKMagicSports.com, and then okay. uh, it'll be on um, – Mark, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with our community. Thank you. But there's one more thing I know I, I, you had said you wanted to ask, which I think is very important, is what my 16-year-old self would say to my 45-year-old self. Or actually, was it What advice? Yeah. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you – yeah, please. Um, what advice uh, would you give to your 16-year-old yeah. self? Now, the funny thing is, is that the final chapter of my book is that, is I write a note. Really? Oh, my, I love it. Yeah, at that time, 44-year-old self to my 16-year-old self. And basically, it describes how much I miss that body and how much I miss mm. the things I could do physically. Mm. And, and it was so different. Being an athlete, there were so many natural things that I had taken from me that really break my heart. And um, still, when I think about it, I'll get upset because there were so, so many things that were so easy for me to do that I couldn't do anymore. Survivors, that's a great word because you really are surviving. Sometimes you do need to find uh, a, a, a way or you need more help that you, because you're not able to do these things yourself. And that's what's more fuss, most frustrating for me is because I'm a, someone who wants to do things themselves and doesn't want to rely on anybody else. And I think that's a really horrible feeling to have is when you feel like you're a burden and then other people have to help in order for you to survive. I would like to see more of attention put on survivors that are permanently damaged from this treatment because I'm one of them. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm trying real hard to, to provide for myself, but there, there's, there's just certain things you can't control. I would like to see more options for those people, uh, more uh, plans for them to either don't have money donated or have them be able to accept money or whatever it is. Uh, but and, and provide a service as well because it's not enough to just get something if you're not providing something back you feel cheated i know for myself the the best i feel is when i feel like i'm doing something to earn what i'm what i'm doing you know it, whether it's just talking to somebody or giving them advice or, or just being there for somebody or it could be just whatever god blessed you with that you're talented at that you can now do online or and, and do it this amount of time that that will be able to not affect you know, some of the things that you can't control. So thank you again for sharing. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. 
You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories. 